Thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. For music and games and puzzles and trivia of all sorts, check out another NPR podcast. It's called Ask Me Another. Play along with a Seinfeld-themed version of Taboo, games of mysterious phenomena, and see what you know about some of the lesser-known puppets on Sesame Street. Ask Me Another is like Trivia Night without the bar tab. Play along now at npr.org slash podcast. npr.org slash podcast. And on the NPR One app. Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here with our roundup of the week's political news. We've got a lot. Thursday night's GOP debate, a new level of competition on the Democratic side of the race, and we will end the show, per usual, with Can't Let It Go, where we all share something we just can't stop thinking about this week. First, some introductions. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith, White House correspondent. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics in the campaign. I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent, journalist emeritus. All right, big news of this week was the State of the Union. We had an episode on that Wednesday. Check it out. But last night, the GOP debate, first debate of 2016 in Charleston, South Carolina, Fox Business Network. It was totally something else, right? I mean, it, it blew me away. I think we saw it. But <laughs> <laughs> Are we supposed to chime yeah, in? Chime. Okay. I don't know. I, have, I mean, I, 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 think, what we, okay. I think what we Moving saw right was along. the... Moving right along. <laughs> okay. I mean, I think that we sort of saw this the sparring, right? Between we, we saw who was going to be sparring with who. And, and I think that we kind of saw that the bromance was over, as Donald Trump said in his own words. Well, I guess the bromance is over because he hit me. I didn't hit him. I hit him after the fact. And so I guess the bromance is over. I mean, there was no reason for him to go that aggressive. So that was Trump in the spin room. But this is all reference to a kind of big showdown between Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, who used to be friends, remember? But they really got into it over this question about whether or not Ted Cruz is a, quote, natural-born citizen because he was born in Canada to an American mother. And thus whether he is legally able uh, and constitutionally allowed to run for yeah. president. It's not just another characterization of one of your rival candidates. He is saying we've got to decide whether or not this man is legally able. Yeah. To be president, therefore, to be our nominee. It's a bold claim, and it got heated. You know, back in September, uh, my friend Donald said that he had had his lawyers look at this from every which way. And there was no issue there. There was nothing to this birther issue. Now... Note the use of the word birther. (laughs) Since September, the Constitution hasn't changed. (laughs) But the poll numbers have. And it just kept going. This was like a seven-minute-long exchange. And there was a moment there for me where I'm seeing Ted Cruz in his element. He is equal parts college debate champ and Southern minister. And at one point I was like, oh, my God, this feels like the first time you see Michael Jackson do the moonwalk on TV. You just stop and say to yourself, this is a man at the top of his game. That's right. But if Ted Cruz won the debating point on this last night and he had the more rational argument and he's probably right about all these things, nonetheless, it's a Pyrrhic victory in the sense that it costs him perhaps more than it's really worth winning. That is to say, they spent seven minutes on the question of whether or not he is even legally eligible to be the president. That means Donald Trump wins by making people distracted on this issue. Yes, And the whole birther conversation conversation is a way of saying, look at this guy. He's other. He's not one of us. He's not one of us. This is the same thing where Donald Trump has been saying, well, not a lot of evangelicals come from Cuba, which is just he's sending out these little signals to the Republican electorate to say, hey, hey. But, you know, I get data from a few people that track Twitter trends around these debates. And for every debate up until this one, 
Donald Trump is always getting the most tweets. But at one point last night, according to the folks at Brandwatch, Ted Cruz had more mentions than Donald Trump. This is the first time ever this campaign season. Like, this was, in some ways, I won't say watershed, but a big deal. The question is, though, as as Ron was implying, I mean, were these positive mentions, were these positive tweets, or were these people kind of reiterating the birther questions, so-called birther questions, you could say? Yeah. We've all been surprised to see how many people were saying, gee, I didn't know that about Ted Cruz. What do you mean he was born in Canada? They, Mm -hmm. They are still getting to know Ted Cruz. He is a really new phenomenon to most Americans, to most Republican voters outside of Texas. And so unlike Donald Trump, who's practically been in your living room for the last decade or so, mm-hmm. this is a new phenomenon to them. And if they learn something such as he wasn't born in the United States, it gives them just a moment's pause. They wonder in the back of their minds, maybe even subconsciously, what else don't I know about it? And, you know, I, I, for me, the next big, big moment was this exchange between Trump and Cruz about, quote unquote, Hashtag New York values. Who wants to set that up? Well, it actually ties into what we were saying before because Ted Cruz says, you know, we don't like these New York values that Donald Trump brings to the race. And here we go. It comes up in the debate. Everyone understands that the values in New York City are socially liberal or pro-abortion or pro-gay marriage, focus around money and the media. And then Trump comes back and says, hold on. And he talked about 9-11. And the people in New York fought and fought and fought. And we saw more death and even the smell of death. Nobody understood it. And it was with us for months, the smell, the air. And we rebuilt downtown Manhattan. And everybody in the world watched. And everybody in the world loved New York and loved New Yorkers. And I have to tell you, that was a very insulting statement that Ted made. And Ted Cruz's face at that point was just... There's a good question here as to who the audience might be for this exchange. Is it South Carolinians who may have negative feelings about New York particularly? And and Ted Cruz did sharpen his definition of New York to say Manhattan. Not a lot of conservatives come off Manhattan. So let's say that there are different audiences for this particular debate and different audiences when you think about Iowa and New Hampshire, two places with a certain amount of resentment perhaps towards New York. So it's it's an open question who wins on this in terms of votes in the early events. But just for the impression made on television in this debate and seen by all the people who are tuned into this particular debate, Trump had what I would call an unusual moment. His facial expression changed. He was thinking of the things he was going to say, and he was measured, and he made a kind of connection. His tone was even a little bit more somber. I think that the actual speech pattern was different than how we traditionally hear him talk. He was talking about 9-11. That's true. You know, now there was some second tier sniping as well. Some guys named Marco Rubio and Chris Christie. Governor Christie has endorsed many of the ideas that Barack Obama supports, whether it's Common Core or gun control or the appointment of Sonia Sotomayor or, or, or the donation he made to Planned Parenthood. Governor? I, um, I stood on the stage and watched Marco and rather indignantly look at Governor Bush and say, someone told you that because we're running for the same office, that criticizing me will get you to that office. 
It appears that the same someone's been whispering in old Marco's ear, too. Did he or Christy break through at all? I mean, I, they, they got at it, but did they break through? I think they broke through each of them in their own way to certain people. I think Rubio was the only one who was really trying to get involved in the Trump cruise action into that dynamism because he has figured out, and we saw this in an NBC Wall Street Journal poll this week, that there aren't that many votes for the establishment champion. Mm -hmm. So even if he beats Jeb Bush and John Kasich and they seem to be fading away, and even if he beats all the other people who, who pretend to the conventional establishment wing of the party, and if he beats Chris Christie, who seems to be his last man standing to beat here. And let's assume Mar Marco Rubio becomes the conventional establishment champion. He still needs to get votes away from Trump and Cruz because there aren't enough votes for the establishment candidate. I just want to read the numbers from that poll that you mentioned because it's, it's pretty remarkable. So they did a hypothetical race between the top three Republicans, if it's Trump, Cruz, and Rubio. And Trump gets 40 percent, Cruz gets 31 percent and Rubio only gets 26 percent. So Trump and Cruz combined and the theory being that they attract many of the same voters. I mean, it, this basically says the establishment lane is like a tiny lane off to the side and it's the access road. It, yeah, looks like it's it, is, like... it is the frontage. <laughs> it, looks, it looks like the vice presidential lane. Now, yeah. instead of the opposite, instead of the, the the establishment candidate getting the nomination and somebody who's more conservative getting to be the vice presidential pick, it's now the opposite. Yeah. Now, we have not at all yet mentioned Jeb Bush. Who was thought <laughs> early on to be that establishment There you go. Candidate. What happened with Assumed him last night? Well, you know, I thought he did a pretty good job of uh, pushing back on the immigration talk. He said we can't have allies in the Muslim world. He mentioned Indonesia, for example, a country that most people don't think of as being mm -hmm. Muslim, but which is. And he says we can't have allies in the Middle East to help us fight ISIS if we're going to throw around things like a Muslim exclusion, like Donald Trump is always talking about. Donald Donald, can I, I, I hope you reconsider this because this policy is a policy that makes it impossible to build the coalition necessary to take out ISIS. The Kurds are our strongest allies. They're Muslim. He registered some good points, but this was not his audience. His presentation was as, let us say, restrained or halting yeah. as it has been in the past. Low energy. He's, He's been called low that energy. That would be a Donald Trump critique. Yeah. Yes. And he's, well, he's also a little out of sync. And there was this one moment, you know, Jeb's thing right now has been to say that Donald Trump is things like unhinged. But a moderator last night followed up and said, Are you saying that all those people who agree with Mr. Trump are unhinged? No, not at all. Absolutely not. I can see why people are angry and scared. He has to walk this, this fine line because when you bash Trump, you're also kind of bashing his supporters, no? Yes. He's bashing a huge portion of the electorate, exactly. it turns out. And, and of the Republican and of the conservative portion. So there was this really funny moment in the debate where Jeb Bush chimes in and says, hey, hey, they said my name. I need time. His name was not taken in vain. His name was just mentioned. And so he took some time. And during that response, he said something about everybody, something or other. Because every person here is better than Hillary Clinton. Then Ben Carson jumps in. Uh, Neil, I was mentioned too. <laughs> you were? Yeah, I said everybody. Oh. Uh, <laughs> oh, my. Oh, the shade. The shade is real. Well, no, the shade was real. He was like, well, you said everybody here. Oh. It's so weird to see where Ben Carson is now. Because there was one point when he was like the guy, and to see him last night, it, he just looks 
not quite all the way in it. The inflection point is quite clear. November 13th. It was the day of the attacks in Paris. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And before that, Ben Carson was truly waxing strong and stronger strong. and amazingly so. And after that, while a lot of people thought, gee, you know, that this is, this is really going to scramble the race, we had no idea the degree to which it was going to make Ben Carson disappear. All right. Before we get to the Democratic side of the race and the new level of competition between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, we're going to try something new, a little break. But don't worry. We'll be back in about 30 seconds. Support for NPR and the following message come from Personal Capital, the smart way to track and manage your net worth. See all your financial accounts in one place and get free online investing software and money management tools. You can even speak with a dedicated personal investment advisor. Join us today at personalcapital.com politics. All right, we're back. Let's move on to the Democratic side of the presidential race. It's getting kind of hot, no? Yeah. Bernie Sanders is edging into Hillary's lead in a lot of polls. But is anything really going to unseat her as a frontrunner? Well, uh, I would say he's more than edging into her lead okay. in a few polls. Explain. He is, Explain. Well, in more than a few polls, he's up by more than a little in New Hampshire. And in Iowa, objects in mirror are closer than they appear. And the, and the <laughs> dinosaur just ran over the Jeep. I mean, it is. <laughs> he, was that a Jurassic Park reference? It is a Jurassic Park, the original reference. Uh, OK, I like it. Bernie Sanders is energizing voters. He's got the momentum. At this moment. And as a result, or maybe this was always going to happen, it has gotten um, chippy. I don't know what the right word is. They are snippy. Snippy. They snippy. Snippy. Yeah. Yeah. They are going after each other. Hillary Clinton and Bernie. You know, policy. And ads, too, right? I mean, I remember there was an email from the Clinton campaign the other day, and and I haven't actually seen this ad, so maybe we could play a bit of it, but I know that they were concerned about how sort of attack ad. The uh, Bernie Sanders team had put out an attack ad, they say. Yeah, so let's play this attack ad. There are two Democratic visions for regulating Wall Street. One says it's okay to take millions from big banks and then tell them what to do. My plan, break up the big banks, close the tax loopholes. So there was the attack. I I like that music. I I like that music. Also, what was the attack in there? So the attack was... There are two visions in the Democratic race, and one says take all the money from Wall Street and then try to regulate it. Um, This ad comes out yesterday morning. The Clinton campaign yesterday afternoon calls a conference call, and they said— Did it call for that? I mean, I didn't hear anything too crazy in that. Well, so they their complaint, and I've talked to other people who say this could be a problem for Sanders— Bernie Sanders has been promising since the very beginning of this race that he will never run a negative ad. He has never run a negative ad. He has never been a negative campaigner, and he's not going to start now. But in the scale of negative in this election, that's not really that negative, no? It's pale compared to what we're seeing elsewhere. But it is saying, and I don't think anyone who is old enough to vote is going to miss that they're saying that Hillary Clinton has taken millions of dollars from Wall Street and is not to be trusted to regulate them. That's what the ad says. Yeah. Meanwhile, the Clinton campaign has also been running ads like this one. It's time to pick a side. Either we stand with the gun lobby or we join the president and stand up to them. I'm with him. I'm with him, she says. Him being Barack Obama. Being President Obama, implying that somebody unnamed might be with the gun lobby. I don't know, Bernie Sanders. And this could be a sore spot for him, no? This could be a sore spot for him. They're definitely capitalizing on it because this is possibly the only 
policy area in the entire fight where Hillary Clinton is firmly to the left of Bernie Sanders. And they've been trying to capitalize on this actually since October. But this week they escalated it with both her rhetoric in her stump speech, this ad, as well as she got an endorsement from the Brady campaign to end gun violence, all of which is sort of pushing Bernie Sanders on this one issue where she's to the left of him. So there was an event this week where Hillary and Bernie, they both were at it. And uh, they talked about the tension in the race, no? Yeah. This was the Brown and Black Forum uh, on Fusion Television. It was in Iowa. And Jorge Ramos, one of the moderators, asked Bernie Sanders about the new intensity of of the campaign. Have you noticed lately that she's been getting more aggressive with you? Yes! Why is that? (laughs) Did he just go Y-A-A-A-S-S-S? He basically did a mini mini Dean. I don't know. It could be. (laughs) You tell me. It could be that the uh, inevitable candidate for the Democratic nomination may not be so inevitable today. Yes. Shots fired. Indeed. Shots fired. So I have to ask, and maybe, you know, Ron or Tam, you guys have some great historical perspective on this. I've heard some references. What are you saying about us? (laughs) I guess, you know, I've heard some references, even from the Sanders campaign, speaking to parallels between his campaign and President Barack Obama's campaign. And I sort of struggle with this time and again because where we see these competitions tight are Iowa and New Hampshire, two states that are hugely racially not representative of where the Democratic Party is. And I think the difference with Obama, as soon as he won Iowa, he convinced black voters in South Carolina that he was viable with black and white voters. Because until then, they were all for Hillary Clinton. And that changed Mm -hmm. the equation. I see two parallels between the Obama campaign in 2008 against Hillary Clinton and Bernie's campaign now. One is they both had an issue. Obama had the Iraq war, and he hung that around Hillary Clinton's neck and mobilized a lot of people at the base of the Democratic Party who really wanted to vote against the Iraq war. And Hillary Clinton, of course, had voted to authorize that invasion. Bernie Sanders has the banks. Bernie Sanders has Wall Street. He has other issues as well. But the other thing that I think is even a bigger parallel and that is really benefiting Bernie Sanders right now is that people bump up against the prospect of Hillary Clinton actually being their president or their nominee and they pause. They hesitate. They say, hmm, do I really want her? Many say yes. Many other Democrats do not. And that gave Obama ultimately his opportunity, which he exploited in the early primaries. And that's why we have seen the numbers close between Bernie and Hillary. Bernie's numbers have not come up very much. Hmm. Hillary's have come down. down. But what Barack Obama managed to do was appeal to white Democrats and black Democrats and brown Democrats. Does Bernie Sanders ever get to that point? Because right now he's not there yet. No, he's not there yet. He he did this week. His campaign launched a bus tour of historically black colleges and universities in the South. And you saw the huh. you saw the pretty much twenty four seven coverage that that uh, tour was getting <laughs> from mm-hmm. the media, right? <laughs> yeah. But Bernie Sanders knows that that is his weakness, and he is working on it. Whether he can. Fix that problem for himself is entirely unclear. Whether Hillary Clinton has put together an organization in those southern states that is really, truly a firewall. I mean, I think we can't know until Iowa and New Hampshire happen. So important to note, no one's voted yet on either (laughs) side. Big, big question is if she does lose Iowa and New Hampshire, which is a real distinct possibility, if she loses them both, does she lose them badly? 
or does she just barely lose them? If it's if it's kind of a tie, if if it doesn't look that disastrous, she survives, goes on into South Carolina, gets in a win column, goes on to Nevada, adds another one, goes into the first primaries of March, mostly in the South, and writes her ship. If she gets clobbered, if she gets wiped out in Iowa and New Hampshire, Katie, bar the door. Where is she trying to set expectations? Well, this conversation that we're having right now where we're like, wow, Bernie Sanders is kicking her butt in these polls and gosh, Hillary Clinton could be in trouble. That she is, like that conversation? That is exactly what Hillary yeah. Clinton's campaign wants because those first two states are all about expectations. And if she is the inevitable candidate, if everybody's saying, oh, she's inevitable, well, then if she wins by two points, it's like losing. But if everybody's like, oh, my gosh, Hillary Clinton's in trouble and she wins by two points, then suddenly... Wow, she won. She stopped the Bernie train. Then she wins by winning. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so we've talked about Iowa on the podcast a bit in the last few weeks. The caucuses there are two weeks away. And Asma, you worked on something this week that asks a very basic question about Iowa's role in this entire process, right? Exactly. I mean, we've been sort of throwing this question around a, a lot. Not just us. I think this yeah. is sort of the Why perennial Iowa? question. Why Iowa? Why Iowa first? And how representative are both Iowa fair? and New Hampshire of yes. what, you know, the country looks like? You could argue what the Democratic or the Republican Party looks like. But I wanted to really drill down on that question of are they representative of what the country demographically looks like? Um, so we did sort of quantitative fun project. Uh, I can walk <laughs> you through what we did here. Quantitative I is have, fun. I know, right? You see my five spreadsheets here. Oh, my. <laughs> wow. Um, those look fun. I know, right? It's going to make great radio. <laughs> <laughs> so we looked at five factors. And these are five factors that I sort of walked through with my editor trying to assess what five factors are really important politically as well as demographically for what the country looks like. So those are race, education, which is uh, whether or not the percent of the population that has a bachelor's degree or higher. Um, age, we looked at median age. We looked at uh, income through the lens of median household income. And then religion. Uh, the, the first categories I listed, all those four came from census data. This last one, religion, is not asked in the census. So we looked at the Pew Research Center has this uh, religious study landscape. And so we looked at that. So who uh, won? Which state is the most representative? By those metrics. So who won? Oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> but I want to pick. Okay. Can, can okay. I, can Let's have some guesses out there. I My vote is for the state I recently moved to, which is Virginia, mm. which seems like a um, it's a purple state. It has a diverse economy. It has rural parts. It has urban parts. And it's quite racially diverse, I think, at least the part that I live in. <laughs> um, everyone so, guesses the state first. Okay, I cool. did a little research on this, too, because I did a story that aired last week on why Iowa got to be first and if that's fair or not. And I talked to a data guy. His name is Dante Chinney. He's the director of the American Communities Project at American University. And he said, in some ways, Iowa is good because it's small enough for small-time candidates to make their way across the state. Uh, but he did say that you kind of want a mix of urban and rural because that's what America is today. And so I asked him, and then he had a few options that he ran through. Pennsylvania is a very good option. Colorado is an interesting state. My home state of Michigan. Ohio is a really good one. So he had a few, but he settled on Georgia because hmm. he said Georgia still has a lot of rural parts, hmm. but it's also got Atlanta, right? Okay. So Georgia's my pick. All right. And or, or, or he mentions also Ohio, which yes. traditionally people have focused on partly because it's demographics and it's economic mix. And it can be a swing state. 
And oh, it, it can and be it the is, one hell is, of a swing state. It is the swing state because no Republican has ever been elected president without carrying Ohio. So that clearly makes it crucial to the Republican Party and to the Democratic Party as well. And because those numbers all match up so well, economically, education-wise, uh, demographically in terms of race and so on, to the national numbers, you cannot deny that there is a certain representativeness. You also have Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati, three major cities. It's expensive. So I like Ohio. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, unfortunately... Drum roll, drum roll, drum roll. None of you are correct. Wow. Okay. None of us. None of you are correct. And I can give you a quick reason on why before we actually reveal the real winner. So Virginia, you're right, Tam, very racially representative of where the country is. The problem with Virginia is that it's education, and I believe its income levels are too high. On education, it was in the bottom 10, meaning it's just too well educated compared to the Mm. rest of the country. And and some of that kind of makes sense. You think of Northern Virginia as being this sort of, yep, suburb, almost uh, exurbs now of of Washington, D.C. So that was Virginia's downfall. So Georgia... So Georgia. Georgia It's diverse. Georgia is diverse. But I will say because we racially looked at all of the subgroups, certain states like Georgia that had large African-American populations were overrepresented in the Mm. black population and perhaps underrepresented Ohio in particular when it came to Latino population, which is larger at this point than the black population. We're at large in the country and it's a growing population. Mm. Um, The other issue with Ohio is that Ohio is older. Yep. That was a problem we had with Pennsylvania as well. Old is beautiful, Asma. <laughs> well, the median age is 37.7. And median age is kind of Oh, my of God, tricky... is that old? Yeah. So then who wins? Who wins? Do you who have a wins? measure there for grumpy? And can the state that wins please have really good weather? And we've got to drum roll this. So I think what is somewhat comical is that uh-huh. the state that wins borders Iowa. It's, it's Missouri. Illinois. Oh, Illinois. Illinois. Yeah. Uh, well, Illinois, Illinois is I like expensive, Illinois. but ad buys in Chicago are expensive. Killer. I didn't but that's look at ad buys. Kill, yeah. Kill. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Killer. Because like <laughs> the one, one of the, big, one of the most expensive markets. It's in the expensive. Yeah. But and, and it could I, be an expensive market, Chicago. But you look at the state of Illinois, and in some ways, you know, I was talking about this with a colleague of ours who's from Iowa, and. It, it makes sense in a lot of ways. You know, Illinois and Iowa, there are parts of it that butt up against one another that are very similar on religious levels. Um, you could say the rural mix, rural, suburban, urban mix is, is really representative of what the country looks like. All the way down um, the Mississippi River. Median share. household yeah. income is fairly representative. I mean, Illinois was one of these states that on all metrics, entirely representative of where the country now, is. full I disclosure. Mean, fully representative. Full disclosure, you have some personal ties to the Chicago area? I was born in Illinois. Okay. You know, right. But this is a... You were born in I was I grew up in Chicago. I wasn't born there. So what do you think, Ron? <laughs> I, I actually, what a lot of people don't know about Illinois is that once you get out of the Chicago area, and particularly as you get down toward the southern part mm-hmm. of the state, uh, you get into a part of the state that's a little bit more like Kentucky, hmm. part of the state that's more like Indiana, part of the mm-hmm. state that's more Iowa, and it is largely rural, largely agrarian. And there is a strong influence of the South. There is a strong influence of Southern attitudes. There is a sizable black population. Most people think that everybody who's African-American in Illinois lives in Chicago. But in fact, there's a very sizable African-American population in Southern Illinois, but they tend to have much more of a Southern tradition. So they would be more like the black people you find in Arkansas. So, I mean, obviously, I want to throw this out there that this system is somewhat arbitrary, right? I mean, we decided what metrics to use. You can use a lot of different economic indicators. And so we would would certainly love your feedback if you think there's a better way to do this yeah, system. Let us know. If you disagree with this, see, um, like I would add 
market size and expenditure costs, how much it costs to advertise. I would add that metric. And I would add the type of economy you have. Weather mm-hmm. conditions, quality of hotels. <laughs> Three star or better. righty. Let us know what state you think should go first. Hit us up at NPR Politics or at any of our personal handles. Um, you know, speaking of Twitter, we're going to try a new thing this week. Uh, we're going to take a listener question. Hmm. from a follower of the NPR Politics Podcast on Twitter. So you can do that, too. Send us your questions online. We might answer them in the podcast. This question came from at Professor Taxi. Um, His question, you should dedicate some time on the NPR Politics Podcast to the -the behind-the-scenes stuff, like how you track speaking time. He's talking about how we track how long each candidate has spoken in each debate. And you know what? I actually don't know that. I know that someone here does it, Barbara Sprunt, who we love, but how does it get done? Stopwatch. Stopwatch. Just a stopwatch? She sits there and stopwatch measures who talks for how long in each debate. In real time. I know that sounds kind of analog. It sounds kind of old school, and it is, but by golly, stopwatches are pretty accurate. I bet there's a calculator involved, too. (laughs) Well, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty cool. Yeah. No, it is It is really cool to see how now, is, much time each candidate yeah. gets. It, is it just Barbara or does she have help? I feel like the intern will have to be a backup, The interns, right? the interns yeah. often help. So, we like, how many hands stop are watch. on deck? How more many folks are stop watching? Watch. Two, three? We cannot one. divulge that it's professionally oh, proprietary information. It depends on the debate. Okay. Well, send us more of your questions. We want to know. We want to hear. We want to make this podcast work for you. Okay. Now it's time for Can't Let It Go, where we all share something we can't stop thinking about this week. Politics or otherwise. Ron? I'm sorry if this doesn't seem serious enough to be a can't let go, but I cannot get the eidetic image of the suit. What does eidetic mean? It, it means it's stuck on your eye. It just You, you can't oh. get it out. It just keeps kind of coming back and, and, and refracting in your eye. Wow. Uh, I can't get out that image of Neil Cavuto. In his zoot suit? In his remarkable <laughs> suit from Batman the Joker. <laughs> I, I, I mean, the man is the boss journalist at Fox Business. He yeah. is a serious guy, and he was wearing a suit with pinstripes so far. Those back. I pinstripes. Think I could have put my oh, hand my goodness. Down Remember and... that Mentos commercial where the guy rolls around on the bench of white paint? No. And he gives himself pinstripes? Kind of like that, too. A little, <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. I mean, black suit, white chalk stripes this far apart. Unbelievable. I can't get it out of my it mind. It was epic. Couldn't let go. All right, next. Asma. So my can't let it go is an op-ed I read. I know it sounds kind of like a little dull. But the other week, uh, the other day, I was reading this piece by Charles Blow in the New York Times. And it it really has like stuck with me because it's, it's about a theme that I think we're hearing about continuously this election cycle, which is identity. And in it, he sort of talks about reaching out to a group of high school students, young boys, and how the issue of President Barack Obama as president came up. And he basically makes the argument that for a lot of these kids, the first president that they have consciously registered was Barack Obama, a black man. Which, I mean, you say that and you're sort of just like, oh, all right. But but it makes me think about, you know, what are all of our first political memories and how much those first political memories stick in your mind. And so to be a kid, when you think president, president is equated with black man, is a really sort of profound image that is so different yeah. from so many I mean, of our earliest I think I've been memories. hearing that, though, since he became president. But it kind of brings to mind for me this big question that a lot of Obama supporters, I think, have to grapple with at the end of his term 
was the Obama presidency more a symbolic one or a substantive one? All right. But if he wasn't able to be either the magic president that some people were imagining him to be or the great bridge builder that he himself might have idealized himself being, I still think Osma's point is an interesting one, which is while he was black from the beginning, he is black for eight years. That means that every year there's another set of babies who are growing up seeing a black president seeing a black president and, and by the time it becomes memory. normative uh-huh. yes that's what they think a president looks like and that makes a difference sam what can you not let go in the thread of racial politics i have been obsessed this week with the racial politics of south carolina governor nikki haley uh we all know that she is an up-and-coming star in the GOP. She handled the aftermath of the Charleston shooting quite well and was instrumental in helping get the Confederate flag off of State House grounds in South Carolina. And this week, she gave the GOP response uh, to the State of the Union address. A lot of moderates and Democrats liked it a lot. A lot of conservatives said, uh-uh, no good. They said she tacitly hit Donald Trump too hard and was soft on immigration And at one point, Ann Coulter tweeted that Donald Trump should deport Nikki Haley. I think, though, she later said, ha ha, sorry, I was joking. But what interested me was that deport Nikki Haley became a hashtag. Yes. And there were a lot of really mean tweets about Nikki Haley and her policies and her stances. But a lot of them were kind of racially loaded. So it wasn't just we don't like Nikki Haley because of what she's saying. It's like we don't like her even more because of who she is. There is a sense, I think, that uh, this was another in a long series of shocks for Reince Priebus, the Republican National Committee chairman, who has been trying to diversify the party a little bit, increase its appeal to women and to younger people. Nikki Haley qualifies on all those counts. She is all of the things that Reince Priebus would like the Republican Party to appeal to. And he was delighted with her speech. And, of course, all of that just angers this talk radio group. All the yeah. more. Rush we Limbaugh don't know exactly. Out against her. Yes. Laura Ingram came out against her. There were some Coulter. tweets I saw. Like the thing that I've noticed on Twitter this week, it's not just a backlash against Nikki Haley from some white conservatives online. There's even a backlash from Indian American Twitter. Uh, there was this hashtag that popped up later this week. Uh, hashtag Indian American Southern Governor Name, and people were mocking the fact that she whiteified her name to be more palatable to some voters. So there you were, mean like Bobby Jindal? Like Bo- there's a lot of Bobby Jindal comparisons, but, but in some ways she's different. But, but bit, first yeah. I want to say, like, in many ways, a politician like Nikki Haley can't get a break on either side. I think she, that's the you know, She point. is yeah. not brown enough and then too brown in the same breath. How do you handle that? Well, it, Barack Obama, President Obama had the exact same issue where yeah, people yeah. said, oh, he's not black enough. And didn't he yeah. go by Barry for a point in time? He yes, did. When and he was young. He yeah. And so that's, I think, a generational difference. Yes, and it's interesting that the people who call him Barry now... Do uh, it derisively. Uh, yeah. Do it derisively and do it against him from the right. Yeah. And what really interests me with all of this, like, people on both sides of the aisle will say to you, the whole point of America and getting to be American is that you kind of get to do it the way you want, right? And so I could see how both liberals and conservatives should see in Jindal or Haley the right for these charismatic individuals to embody their race and their personhood in whatever way they see fit. But instead, we see people on the left and the right almost telling them how to be brown. I mean, this all just speaks to the fact that race is really tricky, And even when you think you've got it right, 
you're never going to make everybody happy. Oh, no. there's <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where you're always inevitably someone somehow, you're going to step in it. You're going to make somebody upset. Yeah. Yeah. What can you not let go, Tamara Keith? The USA Freedom Kids. Do tell. I, I think we should just hit the tape. Uh. Ron's dancing already. It, it kind of rocks. Cowardice. Cowardice. Apologies for freedom. I can't handle this. We shouldn't apologize for freedom. When freedom brings. Answer the call. On your feet. Stand up tall. Freedom's on our shoulders. USA. So this Why was. Why must I cry? This mm. was the opening act. This? this was the opening act for uh, Donald Trump's rally in Florida this week. President Donald Trump knows how to make America. These cute as a button little girls in stars and stripes. And red, there was three white, of them, blue. right? There were three of them. The group actually has five kids. It's it's like sort of a a Backstreet Boys menudo like a type. K-pop kind of band where they just interchange the members at will. Well, so uh, what I understand after doing a little bit of research is that this is a pretty new um, girl group. What's super their name group, again? USA Freedom Kids. They have two songs out. The father of one of the girls has written the music. He he actually put out a, an audition call to cast. The USA Freedom Kids. So it really is like a Menudo sort of situation. And um, I love that we're mentioning Menudo. I love that so much. <laughs> My favorite part of that song is that they coined a new word. Ameritude. Did you hear that? Oh, Ameritude. Yes. Ameritude. Ameritude. What is Ameritude? So, but look, so question, if we had to define it right now, what is Ameritude? I, 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 I don't, I can't define it for you, but I know it when I hear it. That's right. That's right. It's going to be stuck in my head all day, and I blame you, Tamara. I blame you. Listeners, just say thank you. <laughs> Can't let it go. <laughs> Never let that go. All right, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you for listening. Let us know if you like the show. Find us on Twitter. You can also email us at nprpolitics at npr.org. And you can catch our political coverage on your local public radio station as well. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House and the campaign. I'm Asma Khalid. I cover demographics and the campaign. I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent, journalist emeritus. And we'll see you next time on the NPR Politics Podcast. Politics.